BetMGM is pitching baseball fans a chance to swing for the fences. Register using code CHAMPION200 and win $200 in free bets when you place a $10 money line wager on any Major League Baseball game and either team hits a home run, regardless of your bet's outcome. Enjoy baseball like never before with BetMGM's daily promotions at your fingertips all season long. Download the app or go to BetMGM.com and use code CHAMPION200 to win $200 when you bet $10 on an MLB game and either team hits a home run. Sign up today and find out why nothing beats a win at the King of Sportsbooks. Major League Baseball trademarks used with permission. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Virginia only. New customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable free bets or site credit. Free bets expire seven days from issuance. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-888-532-3500. Hey everyone, Robert Silver here, asking a question in each episode, Am I Crazy? by tackling the most sensitive topics of the day. From politics to fitness, fashion to food, music and entertainment, I'll be exploring it all. And remember, it's never personal, it's perspective. And in this episode, I want to ask the question, am I the only one who is in a constant fight against depression or am I crazy? Depression has been something I've been battling with for a long time and it's got me into toxic relationships, has uh, made sure that I've made some serious life-changing mistakes and has not allowed me to enjoy the progress I've made, whether it be small or large. Today, I want to discuss what is depression, how to notice the signs if you or someone you know is suffering from it, and how to manage a healthy life while battling with that demon. And today, to help us better understand exactly what is depression, I have two amazing guests from the Cypress Resilience Project, Program Director Brooke Brigance and Program Manager Jasmine Nakagawa Wong. Welcome, ladies. How are you? We're good. How are you? We love the applause. Uh, well, let I, me know, give I don't always get welcomed into a room like that. There you go. <laughs> no, we don't get that very often, do we, Well, well deserved. Well deserved. <laughs> I love pressing the buttons; they light up and everything. So, you want applause? You got them. <laughs> it's win-win. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, it's what do you call it? Instant gratification. You know. Right. Um. Yeah. So I, I really appreciate you two both coming on to my podcast that you actually coming on my podcast makes my 10th episode. I'm finally in double digits with this podcast and it's a personal pro- pet project, mm-hmm. but ironically what we're talking about today is personal to me. <clears throat> and uh, before we get into depre- uh, to what is depression, I want to share a little bit of my background so that our viewers or our listeners as well um, understand that like, I'm not looking from the outside in, I'm actually in it, in the fight myself. And, um, just Mm -hmm. recently, um, and it happens a lot with my creative work. I I never seem to feel like I, I made it or I'm doing good enough or pushing. And then I get into like serious negative ruts and I try to, um, I listen to tons of motivational things as like, just to hear the mantra of keep pushing, keep going. And, but it's got me also into some bad situations. I had a very good relationship and it, and, and I literally destroyed it myself because I didn't, 
so many great things happened. I got a better job. I, I, I was doing great, made more money in my photography, everything. And I got her, I got everything. And then all of a sudden, sure enough, I self-sabotaged that. And I said, and I said, oh my God, how do I do that? I said, you know what? I don't allow myself to enjoy the success. I don't let myself do it. And I notice a pattern. And that's why this topic, I was like, you know what? There's, there's so many people who, who, who watch me on my photography, my filmmaking, and they see like, wow, this guy's really doing his best to put himself out there. He's not lazy. But they don't realize like I'm fighting when the camera's off. And like mm -hmm. how hard it is to do these projects, how hard it is to get up and be motivated and to make even this episode to call you and say, look, I, I want to talk about this because I'm going through it. and Maybe I will even learn. And um, so just to let people know that, like, hey, no matter what, you know, like there's a song, a, a rap artist named Royce the Five Nine. And he says uh, it's a it's a song goes check on on your on your strong friends. Right. And he was talking about mental health mm -hmm. and, you know, you got to check up on them just because you see them doing good. You don't know. So I just want to let people know out there I'm battling with it. Uh, finally, Kaiser booked me with a therapist and I'm going to try to talk this out. We're going to make this work, you know, and, uh, you know, I'm all you about got, you got to the uh, six, eight month wait list. For uh, Kaiser, it's, well, hold on now. It's July. Okay. <laughs> okay. You know, but, uh, but I, I, but you know what? Here's the thing. Here's the thing. This is what, this is my thing. If you put the, and there's just me, if you put the energy out there that you want change in your life and you're doing what you can to manifest that, not even just like wilf, like willfully manifest, like I manifest with a dream, you know, no, if you actively partake in trying to make a change, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's going to, you're starting off on the right foot. I don't know how to say it. You know, when I, when I stopped smoking cigarettes, I stopped buying them. That was the first decision. And guess what? I haven't bought any in like over a decade. So, um, yeah, I have to wait a few months. That's, that's definitely hilarious. But at the same time, I'm glad I, I, uh, it was hard enough for me to call yeah. them, you know, yeah. and to admit, cause I had to repeat it like four times. My, my issue, which was very private, you yeah. know? about my issues yeah. of self-sabotaging good relationships, you know? And so yeah. anyway, so, but yes, that is funny. You have to wait like five months. Well, it just, it's one of the things we talk a lot about mm -hmm. at Cyprus. We do a lot of trainings in mental health first aid certification mm -hmm. and trauma-informed practice, grief recovery. And one of the frustrations that we have is that we're encouraging people to access care and we're encouraging them to have those hard conversations and be as brave as you were. And then they find out they can't find one. They can't afford it. There's some kind of barrier. There's a wait list. Maybe they don't speak my language. And so we sort of readily admit there's so many different, very real barriers to accessing care that can um, make someone just say, forget it, you know, and, and then they find themselves in crisis. And so um, we definitely know that there's a crisis in mental health care as a system and making sure that people can access. So that's why you know, Jasmine and I talk about, um, you know, I hate to call Kaiser out because it's not just them, but we know um, firsthand on our team, people who've been trying to access care at Kaiser, it's a long wait. 
Yeah, I'm right there with you, Robert. Like I'm, I'm navigating this journey myself. And yeah. like, it's something that we talk about all the time on the team. But even like when you are experiencing the signs and symptoms of depression, like it can be really hard to do those little things like advocate mm-hmm. for yourself to make that phone call to try to get an appointment to follow up like, and that's, that's the real part, right? Like it's, it's yeah. hard. So I, I applaud you on being persistent and like, navigating all of those different steps because I know how difficult it can be. Thank you. We always talk about it. It's like, it's like that feeling of like you, you don't have any gas in the tank, you know, like it just like, it takes everything you got to just do the little things. Like you said, make the call, do the stuff. And it's that feeling of like, I don't have enough gas in the tank for the other stuff, you know? So when there's a barrier, it makes it even, even more difficult. And, um, no, you're, you're a hundred percent right. I think that that timing is, is, uh, is really horrible. You know, they certainly don't take four months to take my premium, you know what I mean? So, (laughs) so, (laughs) you know, go figure. Right. So, but but that's a, that's it. That's an, you know, I'm going to have to, you know, so that's some of the efficiencies of how we run the system in America, you know? And, um, you know, I, I we have to go to the ballot box. Uh, we can't solve that in this episode. But can you tell me a little something before we get into depression? Tell me a little something about Cyprus Resilience Project. So for those that don't know about it. And yeah, it, so Cyprus um, actually was born one day. Jasmine and I work for another program that serves young people. Um, both of these programs are at Public Health Institute in downtown Oakland. And we were talking about the students we serve one day and working in community and, and our own lived experience. And we were talking, I think we were eating lunch, right, Jasmine? I think we were sitting in our office eating lunch one day and we were... That's usually when we have our best ideas is when we're eating lunch. <laughs> we're always eating. Robert, we love to eat. We love to talk about food. It's our jam. So we were, oh, we were talking about, we were eating food or whatever, and we started to talk about what were some of the things that in our lives had had impact, but also in the people we knew and the students we serve. The first thing we thought of was grief. We thought a lot of us were grieving, um, maybe not bereavement, the death of someone, but other life events. Um, and so we became grief recovery specialists. And then we got an offer uh, to become instructors in mental health first aid. And for those listeners um, and viewers out there who might not know what that is, mental health first aid certification is kind of like getting CPR certified only for mental health. And so it's a professional certificate. Um, You're in one of our classes for a full day. And what you do is you learn how to identify signs and symptoms of a mental health challenge and then all the way how to handle a crisis. So how to support someone with a panic attack, how to handle an overdose, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then we um, I, we started getting interested in trauma, so I became a trauma-informed uh, systems trainer and specialist with Alameda County Behavioral Health, and um, Cyprus was born from there. We, um, we do community-based trainings. Uh, last year, obviously during the pandemic, we've been training a lot, and last year we certified, gosh, almost 1,800 people in mental health first aid. Um, about 7,000 were trained in trauma-informed practice, and um, so we've been really... We've worked with everyone from unsheltered youth outdoors to high-level C-suite execs to, you know, public health workers, first responders, you name it, educators. So we, we're we're all about community-level work. Wow, that's 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 amazing. 
uh, quite honestly, because I mean, I've I know a little bit, obviously, from uh, our history, you know, working together. And um, but to hear that is is amazing, because for sure, uh, I appreciate that people talk about mental health more and it's it's getting more normalized and people aren't shunning away and locking people up for admitting it. And rather, they're almost being rewarded in terms of like, you know, like there's more support for it. And I think that helps me, too, because I didn't realize myself I was suffering from this until this um, particular situation for me. So thank you for uh, for doing what you're doing. Um, OK, let's get into it. Um, I just want to state this one statistic that I found about what is depression. So. Now, depression affects an estimated one in 15 adults, like six point seven percent in any given year and in one in six people 16.66 percent with the experience that experience depression at some time in their life now i'm gonna ask an obvious question uh since i just heard from you brooke let me see if um let's hear from jasmine is depression a mental illness yeah so um Depression is defined as a mental health disorder. It's a diagnosable mental health disorder um, that someone could have a diagnosis of depression by a clinician. And that's something that's totally possible. I also think that it's something that impacts more of us than are diagnosed with it, if that makes sense. So many more of us experience the signs and symptoms of depression and may not necessarily treat, seek treatment or support for that and may not be diagnosed. But um, so I I think like some of those statistics that I hear, I'm like, oh, I bet it's more than that. Right. Um, but yes, I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I could just speak from my experience. Like, I don't think I would have admitted it even three, four years ago. So, no, you're 100 mm -hmm. percent right. Like this is who actually went in and did the diet, you know, a test, et cetera, and admitted it that they even have an issue. So no, you're a hundred percent right. And, um, do, do now, obviously talking about me, yourself and, and Brooke, like we're all adults here. Do, do children suffer from depression in general, Brooke? What do you think? Like, yeah. So, possible? um, one of the things that we know about depression is that it often goes hand in hand with anxiety as well. And mm. I think that's really important. Um, the median age of onset for signs and symptoms of anxiety in the country is actually 11 years old. Um, and we're expecting that to go down um, with COVID and some of the additional stressors uh, of the pandemic and other things happening in the world, obviously. Um, the median age and onset for depression is uh, 32. And there, you know, you would think like, why is there such a huge discrepancy? And it's a couple of groups that do that. Um, first are um, folks experiencing postpartum depression. So maybe I've never had depression before. I give birth to a child. Now it's the first time that I've had that experience. Um, the other group that we don't like to talk about that gets a little gnarly or emotionally are the elderly. Um, that oftentimes people have not had an experience with depression and then they get to their older years. Maybe they're managing chronic pain and illness. The family is away. 
Um, they no longer have work or feel the sense of purpose of, of a vocation, something like that. And so they may have a, a first onset of, of depression. And so those two groups skew that number, but it's about 76% of all mental health challenges are diagnosable by the age of 27. So we see the signs and symptoms of anxiety and depression very early. Wow, that's that's incredible. And then you said it's further uh, aggra- uh, agitated with these societal tra- traumatic issues like COVID, you know, mm-hmm. uh, news of mass shootings, all this stuff just adds to it. Mm-hmm. And do you, I don't have this written down, but were we this depressed like historically like i mean if we go back let's just say a good thousand years you know let's go back to when good old jesus was around you know were we that angry in, in our linens and in our linen togas togas and stuff like i'm just i'm trying to figure out like what is the correlation is technology and access to knowledge really like i'm trying to figure out is this part of the human experience Depression. Jasmine, you want to take that one? You want, you want to talk about togas? <laughs> no, I don't know about togas, but I'm just saying in general. Uh, yeah, you know, choosing togas might be a, a sign of depression, but uh, no, uh, but <laughs> right, like I when, when I'm going through a depressive episode, it's really hard for me to get dressed. So maybe a toga is easier maybe to put on. Than, you know, like I'm like, Sign number one. <laughs> but like, but all of us have been sort of living in sweatpants for the past couple of years yeah. anyway. If we're that's a good point. Me. See, I'm for it. Um, <laughs> for it. But like, yeah, I mean, I think to answer that question, just from my perspective about you know, is depression part of the human experience? I totally think that it's normal for us to experience lots of different kinds of emotions. And I think that there's so much stigma around that sometimes that we don't talk about it in the same way as we do physical illness or injury, right? So that's something to acknowledge. Um, But we also, I think it's a both and, right? Because we have seen an increase in reports of the signs and symptoms of depression and anxiety during the pandemic and in the last couple of years. And we have seen um, an increase in in young people's um, visits to the ER for signs and symptoms of depression, for um, thoughts of suicide. So that's all stuff that's coming into play recently. Um, There's a lot of research that's currently being done around social media and how that's impacting our mental health. So I think it's a combination of a lot of things. Interesting. I don't know, Brooke, do you have something to add? Yeah, I mean, I, so there's a couple things that come to mind. I mean, so unfortunately, um, the fastest growing demographic for death by suicide in our country is elementary school. Um, children. And uh, the American Pediatric Association thinks that that's um, somehow connected to bullying and access to social media. So there is something going on there for sure. Um, But I also think that um, it's collective trauma. Um, And I think that that's a really important thing. Trauma is intergenerational. We inherit it in our DNA. And that's cumulative. And, uh, you know, so some of us come into this world already with a DNA structure that is primed for some mental health challenges. And then when you add lived experience to that, 
right? Like you're more likely, it's no different than being born, let's say with diabetes in my family, or, you know, you go to the doctor and they're like, do you have breast cancer in your family? And, it, and you know, it's a preventative tool knowing that medical information, it's the same for mental health. And so mm. I, I inherited intergenerational trauma. I have my own trauma background. I don't think it's an accident anymore that I've managed some mental health challenges in my life because my brain works different than other people's brains. And that's cumulative. I'm going to pass that down. So I think some of it is like Jasmine's saying where it's like, yeah, it's this influence of other stuff. And it's this accumulation of inherited trauma and lived experience. Wow. So it almost like it compounds. Yep. It does. Right. Generation, generation, generation. Yep. And there's historical trauma, right? So historical traumatization is really where the, the science shows us that we're likely inheriting the DNA structures of our grandparents. Right. And so epigenetically, I'm influenced by what my grandparents went through. And then I'm raised in a household by my parents who may have their issues. Right. And so you put all of that together and, you know, like it's it's it just makes sense that some of us are going to be more predisposed. And then certain people are also managing systematized trauma. So you look at policing practices and the, you know, school to prison pipeline and what happens to indigenous people and folks who are colonized and what happens when there's a war, you know, and that stuff is cumulative and intergenerational too. So I think it's both. I think it's a biological reality for many of us. And then you add in these other stressors and things like social media. And now we have a mass. No wonder. Yeah, I think that's a really important statement to make, Brooke. And like when you think it's powerful to think about, right? Because like if you think about what your grandparents were doing and what the, the, the conditions and systems that they were living in and how that might be impacting you and your mental health today. Like I think, you know, my grandma was in an internment camp. Right. So like that, that is now passed down into me and and when we do these trainings at Cyprus and we think about all of the intergenerational and historical trauma that all of us may be living with, um, it can feel overwhelming sometimes. So I do want to say like, there are concrete things that we can do to help, right? Like it doesn't mean that just because my grandma was in an internment camp and, you know, I'm living with this intergenerational trauma, it doesn't mean that I'm like doomed, and nope. that's something to remember as well with some optimism. Yep. Uh, I, I 100% agree in that. And uh, that's part of the reason why I want us to talk about it today is that there are things we can do about it and you're not alone. I think not being, knowing you're not alone is so empowering. And um, when mm-hmm. I shared it with my friend, Bet MGM is pitching baseball fans a chance to swing for the fences. Register using code CHAMPION200 and win $200 in free bets when you place a $10 money line wager on any Major League Baseball game and either team hits a home run, regardless of your bet's outcome. Enjoy baseball like never before with Bet MGM's daily promotions at your fingertips all season long. Download the app or go to betmgm.com and use code CHAMPION200 to win $200 when you bet $10 on an MGM. 
MLB game and either team hits a home run. Sign up today and find out why nothing beats a win at the King of Sportsbooks. Major League Baseball trademarks used with permission. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Virginia only. New customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable free bets or site credit. Free bets expire seven days from issuance. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-888-532-3500. Paycom has something to say about payroll. When it isn't right, a lot can go wrong. And it's the employee who ends up suffering the most. After all, their livelihood depends on an accurate paycheck every time. And when they don't get that, they're placed in a tight financial spot, leading to insufficient funds, overdraft fees, missed payments, and other nightmares. Not to mention a lack of confidence and trust in their employer. With Betty, new from Paycom, employees do their own payroll. That means they gain full visibility into their paychecks and can resolve any issues and approve their checks before payroll is processed instead of after for greater accuracy and peace of mind. And best of all, they get a perfect paycheck every time. The future of payroll is here. Learn more at paycom.com slash Betty. That's paycom.com slash B-E-T-I. Her ears like just went boop and was like, wow, I'm not alone. And somebody that's different from me is feeling it. It's like, damn, this is bigger than, you know, it's bigger than we think, but it's great to know that there's a community of people that want the same support. Um, so who is more likely to suffer from depression? And if, and if there is one, why is there, is there one segment of society, men, women, children, who's more likely to suffer from it? So I think, um, so first of all, we know trauma is directly linked to mental health challenges, right? So there's, I think that that's probably one of the most important things to, to think about is what is that person's lived experience. Um, when we talk about trauma-informed practice, we don't say, um, what's the matter with you? We ask what has happened to you. And I think that that's a really important place to start, Right. Um, we know that um, it, it kind of crosses demographics, right? I mean, it's it's all ages. You know, I just pointed to, for for example, postpartum depression. It's about a third of, of people who give birth are going to experience somewhere along the spectrum of that. So I think it depends on like who you're looking at at the time. We know right now youth mental health is, you know, in a really serious condition, right? So young people aren't doing well. We know the elderly aren't doing well. Um, and it's about 42% of adult Americans are currently so showing signs and symptoms of anxiety and or depression. Um, and so take everybody you know and make two groups equal size. About half of them <laughs> are struggling. And, uh, you know, that's just the reality right now. So I think that, um, you know, I, I always say what I say is, you know, this used to be a them problem, but now it's an us problem. Mm. It's you, not like we're poking, it's not where we can't look at some other group and say, oh, it's them. It's everybody. Uh, copy that. So you're saying it's a human problem. <laughs> yeah. Especially right now. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, now, Jasmine, do most people with depression attempt suicide? No, so I mean, that that's a, a 
tricky question to answer. I think, um, so no, not everybody with depression attempts suicide. I think that there's a lot of, um, there are a lot of different factors at play when we think about someone who is, um, considering killing themselves, you know, there, um, and there are a lot of protective factors that can be put into place for somebody who's exhibiting those early signs and symptoms of depression that can prevent them from getting to the point where they are, are in crisis, right? So that's kind of the goal, like one of the goals of Cypress Resilience Project in teaching all of these mental health first aid trainings is that we think that there's like a sweet spot in those that, that time of emerging signs and symptoms where if we as mental health first aiders can like watch really closely the people around us and listen really closely to what people are saying and how their what their outlook is on the world and um, how they're behaving if we can notice really early and connect them to the appropriate kinds of care and treatment and support they're much less likely to um, have that depression or other kinds of mental health challenges impact their lives in in additional ways. You're less likely to see those secondary impacts that can make the road to recovery much more complicated. And the whole idea is to try to prevent someone from getting to this point of crisis, right? We know that folks um, with mental health challenges in particular, um, in comparison to physical injury or illness, folks are much less likely to seek support or help right away when they first start noticing those signs and symptoms. It takes a, There's a really long delay between when they first notice and when they're seeking treatment. And if we can, if we can intervene earlier, that's where we have a shot at saving people's lives, I think. So, you know, normalizing the conversation, like what you're doing right now, Robert, through this podcast and trying to normalize the conversation and like talk about it openly so that people feel like they have safe space to disclose when they're navigating a mental mental health challenge. That is... Um, destigmatizing that conversation is a huge part of this battle, right? Because by normalizing the conversation, we can save lives. It's a life-saving measure. Awesome. Uh, um, that, uh, that's awesome to hear. And, um, yeah, I think you're right. It's, it almost sounded like, like how, like with cancer, if you find it early, it's much easier to treat, right? Mm -hmm. But we're talking about a mental, a, a psych psychological cancer, if you will. And, yeah, and the longer gap you have, and now you're in stage four, it's like, oh boy, it's getting really tough. You're on that ledge, if you will, quote unquote, right? Um, okay, now, Brooke, how long does depression last? Is there, is, you know, is there a time clock? Can I say, oh, okay, in 90 days, I'm going to be good if I just, <laughs> I got to hang in there now. I got to hang in. <laughs> Man, wouldn't that be awesome? <laughs> that would be so great. I'll wait for that. I would love that. I would love that. That'd be awesome. Um, look, I think it it really depends on the person. I, you know, what we always say is everyone's experience is going to be completely unique. Um, the the signs and symptoms are going to be unique. Um, the ebb and flow of it are going to be unique. What helps me is going to be unique to me. Um, you know, and I I will say that. Um, if we have managed, you know, depression or anxiety in the past and we have really severe life events, um, things, and they could be um, at all sorts of, dis, you know, dissembling events. They might even be a really good thing happens to us and it sort of activates us. So um, there's a lot of different kinds of things, but, you, you know, it really depends on the person. Some people 
experience depression for a short amount of time and maybe they don't ever have that again and then that's it for them. Other people are going to manage it across their lifetime and it's just going to be something you know that that you know from here on out like I'm wearing these glasses right I'm not sitting here like do I have to wear these for six more months or can I let go of them in a year like how long do I have to wear these that I'm like yeah I wear glasses yeah yeah <laughs> like I got to do that now um, and I think that for some people that's going to be their experience of mental health is that all right I got I got this thing I got to deal with over here and I got to make it a part of my life I'm, I'm going to project manage my wellness around it um, but I don't, you know, for everybody, it's going to, it's going to be a totally different journey with it. Excuse me. And I do think though, that there are certain things that we can like, if we know that something's coming or something happens to us that, you know, may reactivate that depression that we've navigated in the past, like having that self-awareness and being able to activate some of your protective factors, your support systems, like the care that you think you're going to need, that can be really helpful, right? As a, as a way to navigate it. So an example, like when I was um, pregnant, the what third time around um, (laughs) the first time, time. (laughs) (laughs) I had really terrible postpartum depression. It was debilitating. It was really, really challenging to navigate. And then, so the third time around I, during my pregnancy, I was like, okay, I'm going to set up the appointment with the therapist for afterwards. I'm going to make sure that, you know, all of these support systems are in place so that when I have this third baby, if I do navigate that postpartum depression again, I'm ready for it. Right. And so it's like Brooke was talking about with the glasses. It's kind of like you put your sunglasses on when you're about to go outside. It's like that. Get ready. Um, I, I, th- I think I understand what you mean. Like uh, the gym is that for me. And mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's really, I kid I around sometimes on Instagram, like, oh, this is my church, but it really is. It's where I find salvation, security. And generally the people I bump into are trying to better themselves, you know, so it's a good state and energy to be around. So I totally get it. Like uh, I'll run to that and a bunch of you know, long laundry list of motivational talkers I'll listen to on Spotify and YouTube just to reinforce what i can't say to myself at that moment. So no, I, I, I feel, I definitely feel you on that now. Okay. So that's, that's the end of segment one. So let's get to the second part. Okay. Let's talk about the signs of depression. First, what are some causes of depression? Like what causes, I know you, you touched some of that on uh, earlier, Brooke, but let's, let's, Mm -hmm. let's dig a little bit more. Okay. Yeah, I mean, so again, like I would go back to, um, I, I'm interested in family history, right? So do do we have this in our family? That's that's always going to be something that we want to know. Um, that may not be something that our elders are disclosing to us, <laughs> or maybe even that they know themselves. Um, I, you know, I think that the elders are, are interesting in my mind because um, I always say in my workshops, like, did anybody grow up with, um, you know, some, all the adults were whispering about the bad stuff. <laughs> like they always started, it was always in my grandma's kitchen, right? Like everybody would be talking and then they'd start talking about something they didn't want the kids to know and they would start to whisper. And I think a lot of us don't always know our family histories and and some of the things that have happened um, and that are contributing to our health. So family history is a big part of it. Um, Obviously our lived experience is a huge part of that. 
Um, so, and did we grow up with childhood adversity? Um, if anyone of your listeners has ever heard of ACEs before, if they don't know about that, I, it's always great. I, I always recommend the TED Talk by Dr. Nadine Burke Harris if folks are interested in adverse childhood experiences. Um, those are tough, adverse things that we go through before the age of 18. We know that there's a direct link between our ACE scores and whether or not we develop a mental health challenge. Um, so the, it's this combination of our family history, our lived experience, how our brains are processing chemicals and things like that. Um, the, the signs and symptoms are going to differ by person. Um, so certain things that you might look for um, in one person, you know, maybe Jasmine's depression looks one way, someone else's looks another. Um, I do think there are some things um, that fly under the radar sometimes that we don't often label as depression. We're always used to thinking of depression as like, I can't get out of bed. You know, someone's like not walking, not taking a shower, right? But depression can also be anger. It can also be um, crying. It can be irritability, right? It can be other things too. And I think that's important. We might look at someone's behavior and say, oh, they're just a jerk, you know? Um, but it may be an underlying issue. There, there are other sorts of things that, um, you know, behaviors that we might see. So I, you know, but it's going to differ by person. The, the thing that we talk about in mental health first aid is what you're looking for is disruption in the four L's, the ability to live, love, laugh, and learn, right? So live is someone's ability to just maintain daily tasks. Am I paying my rent? Am I walking the dog? Am I doing what I got to do? Love is relationships. And it might be because we're pulling away from someone or someone's pulling away from us because of those behaviors they're noticing, right? Um, laugh is all the stuff that brings me joy. So you mentioned the gym, Robert. Like if you stop going to the gym and we're friends, I'm going to be like, hey, what's up? You know, because I'm going to be concerned. I, I love to cook. I love to walk my dog. Um, I love to knit. I love to read. I stop doing that stuff. People are going to notice, right? So it's that ability to laugh. And then learn that it could be school, but it's also taking on a new project, learning a new hobby. Um, and some of that is because Folks who experience anxiety and depression might be having trouble with focus or short-term memory, concentration, stuff like that. So when we teach about this stuff, we're saying, look, I'm looking for trouble in those four L's. I'm looking oh. for changes and differences in those different parts of someone's life. That's a, that's pretty, that's a nice tight way to figure that out. I, I never thought of that, but uh, that's why you're the expert. Um but nonetheless, it sure does make a lot of sense, though, when you put it on the table. Now, Jasmine, uh, how do we, okay, for those, especially, I guess, even when we're looking at ourselves, how do we recognize the symptoms of depression? I mean, the three L's do mention a lot, but I, I, I not knowing those three L's, like, how do we notice it if we didn't notice those three L's, if we weren't educated? Because I, I didn't know about the three L's, and... I thought I was fine. I thought I was just making mistakes, et cetera. But then I noticed a pattern and I said, well, hold up now. I'm very analytical. So how, how, do, how, how do we recognize those symptoms now if, for us layman folks? Yeah, I mean, Robert, I love that you're, you're saying that you um, notice the pattern, right? Because I think that that's what we look for is if 
So if you're trying to look for these signs and symptoms in somebody else, it's looking for a change from that person's baseline, right? So like, who is the person that we know them to be? And has there been a change from what they were like before to what they're like now? That's when we want to get a little bit closer, right? Mm-hmm. And that change that's different from person to person, right? Because like the silly example I use when we teach mental health first aid is like, if you know somebody who always takes great pride in how their hair looks, their hair has to be perfect, then all of a sudden you see them not start not combing their hair anymore. Like maybe that's a reason to get closer to that person and try to figure out if something's going on with them. But if there's a person who never takes care of their hair and they're fine with how it looks all the time and it's really messy all the time, like, and they're still not taking care of it, then that's not a huge cause for concern, right? So what we look for is a change from that person's baseline. So if you're looking for a pattern and um, in yourself, maybe like that's, that's what it is, right? Is there do you have a different perspective on the world than you used to? Are you experiencing less joy, more worry, more sadness, um, that inability to concentrate or focus? Are your personal relationships being disrupted? Is it a little bit harder to do all of those little tasks of daily living, right? Like brushing your teeth, combing your hair, getting out of bed, getting out of the house. Like we're looking for those impacts in all those different areas and kind of that emerging pattern that um, it's more than just having, you know, one tough day. Cause all of us have, you know, bad days sometimes, but if you start to notice that there are more and more of them, then it might be cause for concern. Okay. Yeah. I always think too about, um, you know, when you have emotion from something that happens in your life, you might re- be really sad about a breakup. You might be really angry about something on the news but it's something outside of you. And I think in my own sort of journey with anxiety and depression, what starts to one, one of my big clues is like, Ooh, it's when I start to internalize that and feel like I'm broken, like something's wrong with me. Right. Where I make that switch from like, Oh, I'm sad about this relationship ending, or I'm sad about this thing that's happening with my kid or what, like, I'm, that is outside of me. And I, it's a, that's a life event that I might have emotion about. But when I start to turn inside and blame me, or I start to hear that internal voice that says, you don't belong, you're not enough, you're broken, what's your problem? That's a big red flag to me that I'm, my internal dialogue is being impacted by my mental health. Um, and I think that that, um, for those of us who have gotten to really dark places before, you know, that that's where you kind of have some PTSD about depression, right? Cause you don't ever want to go back there. Um, and, and I think that that it's that feeling of like, something's wrong with me. I'm broken. Like internalizing it. Yeah. And Brooke, like, I, I like that because it's like, it's totally normal and natural for us to feel emotion about things that happen in our lives. Right. But then, um, it's trying to look for that turning point. Like where does it start to impact you in a way that is, 
you know, you're not able to manage anymore? What happens when it goes on a little bit too long? And for me, like also that inability to see the light at the end of the tunnel is when I know I'm in trouble, right? When like, I feel like, because when you're impacted by something that's happening outside of yourself, you're often like, okay, you know, if I just focus on doing these few things, going to the gym, like taking care of myself, things are going to get better. But when you're in that depression, like sometimes it feels like you can't see a time that's better. And that's really scary. Yeah. When I hear myself say, what's the point? And then I'm, I'm like, ding, yeah. ding, ding. Okay. <laughs> yeah, totally. like, ah! I, I've been there with the, uh, like, what is this all for? And how much yeah. more? <clears throat> and lately, quite honestly, um, watching some good people leave this mortal plane has been killing me. I'm not gonna lie. Like today we lost Ray, Ray Liotta. Mm-hmm. Shout out to Godfathers. I'm going to watch it tonight. Uh, Goodfellas, excuse me. And um, I know I'll get some tweets about that. Godfather, Goodfellas. But anyway, he was awesome. And he was literally in the middle of filming something, you know, doing what he was passionate about, making films. I mean, what? I mean, Lord Mm -hmm. have mercy. And it's like all these people living their fullest moment to the last moment, I think, is, is, is legendary to me. I mean, that's how I'd want to go out, you know, camera in my hand or something. And, um, but also puts things in perspective that like, this is not forever. And have I done enough yet? And, and can I be satisfied when that last time comes? And to me, I'm always feeling like I can never be satisfied. And it's like, then when is the time to enjoy any of this shit? <laughs> so it's like, it's like this constant cycle. Then it's like work harder. Like, honestly, today, like I've been sick for three days, really sick. Today I found out I'm tested positive for COVID. Right, I'm home, locked down, obviously. And I've had one of the most busiest, productive days. I'm like, I cannot stop. I can't fuck this COVID. Like I am out. I'm I'm sitting here. I'm on podcast <laughs> with you. Before that, I was graphic designing for my job. I was I'm a social media marketing manager, so I'm like scheduling posts. Got my intern doing stuff, and she's rocking and rolling. And I've been up and at it since 6 a.m. And I'm like, COVID doesn't, can't, can't do anything to stop me. But then at the same time, I'm like, shouldn't I allow myself to just rest? Like, maybe this is a sign of, because I thought I was exhausted for three days. I thought it was exhaustion. But really, I was freaking sick. <laughs> and uh, I can't even allow myself to be sick. I don't know what that is. And I think that's part of it is that I'm never satisfied with whatever success I've done or achieved and I can't celebrate anything. I don't feel like it, you know? So I think you're, I think you're absolutely right about that. And that, that could be sad because you never know, you know, you leave a little early, like, damn, maybe I should have took a little time for yourself. So it's, it's a little sad. Here's the last question for the second uh, segment here. How can you determine if an illness is causing depression or a depression is causing an illness? I know that was a, I know. Hold on. Think about it. I'm so excited that you used a sound effect. You told me you had them and I've been waiting on it. Oh no, I have plenty of them, but, uh, (laughs) but I didn't know which ones would be appropriate. You know, that's a great one. So what, so illness, like physical illness. The future will be amazing. And that's all well and good. But what about today? You can feel the rush of a 400-horsepower Nissan Z. 
or climb to new heights in the all-terrain Nissan Frontier. Light up the road in the all-electric Nissan Aria that feels like a sci-fi dream come true. The future will be great, but today is made for thrill. All you have to do is get in a Nissan and drive. 2023 Aria and Z not yet available for purchase. Expected availability is this spring for 2023 Z and this fall for 2023 Aria. You mean like that? Yeah, like, like a physical a, like, illness yeah. and, you know, you, you know, you yeah, exactly physical illness. Okay. Kind of- so, so when I do trauma work, um, it, I think it's really important. Um, a lot of people don't want to claim that word. They think that that's kind of a scary word. We should leave it for like the person whose house burned down or whatever. Right. <laughs> but the definition of trauma that we use is an event, a series of events or a set of circumstances that activates our stress response in our brain over and over and over again. When your stress response activates in your brain over and over again, you're flooded with a bunch of stress chemicals. One of them is cortisol. Cortisol is directly linked to the six leading causes of death, hypertension, heart disease, cancer, autoimmune diseases, etc. So it, mental health issues, connection to trauma, right, is one part of the story. But the, all the other stuff um, so for example, if I had all of your listeners in a room right now and I said, everybody raise your hand if you're having trouble sleeping, uh, a bunch of hands would start to go up right now, right? Because what does cortisol do? It's an activating chemical. So it's like the gas pedal, right? It's a gas chemical. It wakes you up in the morning. That's what your body releases. So when we're under really high levels of stress, maybe we manage anxiety, we manage depression, our stress response goes off, we have a trauma background, all of a sudden, I got a lot of cortisol in my system. I'm going to have a hard time going to sleep. Or maybe I fall asleep, but I wake up in the night, and now I can't get back to sleep, right? Um, another thing cortisol does, it makes your heart go faster because it's an activating chemical, right? Well, hypertension, heart disease, there's a reason then why those things are, are directly linked. Um, cortisol, it, anybody like, at, you know, feeling stress in their shoulders or like their shoulders are really tight or like their neck is really That's tight. That's like me every day. Yeah. Okay. Well, cortisol is intended to protect you from a, a bear, right? A bear is coming and your body releases it and you're supposed to fight it or run away, right? So it's constantly sending a message to all of your muscles to contract. Even though you're sitting here doing a podcast your body, your brain's releasing a chemical if you're under stress that's sending a message to your muscles, contract, contract. That's why a lot of us have muscle pain, migraine, headaches, all this kind of stuff. So you can see over time where there's direct physical implications for all of the stuff that we talk about, grief, trauma, mental health challenge. They're absolutely directly linked to physical illness for sure. That's, that's uh. So I was going to, I was talking to a guy friend. He's a photographer too. He's going to be on the next podcast, but he's a friend of mine. And I was going to talk to him. I said, you know, I was going to say, um, cause I'm going to do a father's day podcast, you know, talk about mm-hmm. men's stuff. And I was going to say, we should take pampering more seriously for men for stress relief. I mean, for what you're saying, it's a physical, this physical, it's your body physically reacting to depression versus a yeah. mental, right? Like yeah. maybe getting a massage once in a while may actually be therapeutic. I mean, that's what Absolutely. it sounded like. I mean, you tell me. And I mean, there's been yeah. there's been so many times where I'm just like, oh my 
God, I wish to hell right here, my neck and my shoulder meet. I'm like, what the hell? And, um, you know, I've had some girl where I ask her, I say, hey, couldn't you from, and she, what am I, this, that? And, uh, you know what? Okay, let him, never mind. We're not going to go there. But nonetheless, um, wow, that's very interesting to hear that there's a direct correlation between the two. Yeah. And I, you know, I think part of the, part of the social justice part of what Jasmine and I do with Cyprus also is, you know, communities of color, people living in poverty, indigenous folks, non-binary identifying folks, all those folks have higher rates of those diseases. Right. And that's where the conversation about historical trauma and all, all the ways in which all of this intersects in a real person's body is important because, you know, those are, those are very real changes to our health outcomes. Um, Those childhood adversity scores I told you about, um, if you, you get a score of one to 10, right? I have an eight out of 10 is my A score. Uh, Statistically, I have a 20 year difference in life expectancy than someone who doesn't have that score. So I no longer think it was an accident that I got an autoimmune disease when I was 26. Uh, my body was predisposed to that. And so there's a direct link. And I think when, where medicine is going to go, where it's already headed, is that our trauma background, our family experience, our lived experience is going to be a part of the conversation about our physical health when we go to the doctor. I'd like it to be less about pills, man. I don't, I don't dig the pill popping. I mean, I've seen so many documentaries. Thank you, YouTube. But I've watched so many documentaries and seen communities fall by pharmaceutical companies trying to make that extra buck. I have frightened me out of pharmaceuticals. And um, I don't know. There has to be. I know there's a balance like, you know, it has its place. But I just see too many. I, 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 I welcome the conversation of including other influences of why you may have depression like you were talking about family and everything else because a lot of times it doesn't involve hey just take this next pill it's something that you you know therapy as what do you call it a uh, psychologist or somebody that can really dig deep and find that missing link um i rather do i'd rather be on a couch and deal with this tell the truth or try to figure it out you know lift some more weights i don't know um anyway all right now uh Jasmine, do you, I'm, you, you sitting there patient like Buddha over there. So um, I would like to hear your input as to maybe even your own experience being, you said you were suffering from postpartum depression. Like uh, did any, any um, when it came to causing depression and physical transformation, being a mother, did that play any role for you? Like the tr- so, uh-huh. go ahead. I'm sorry. Are you you're asking about my experience with postpartum depression? Yes, and like, did okay. So obviously, being a woman, I mean, I can't say obviously, but uh, but when my mother's, when my child's, when my daughter's mother was transitioning from being herself and then into motherhood, you know becoming pregnant things change and you said at that particular time you said you you had suffered from postpartum depression right now did the was it 
was did physical did the physical part the physical part play any um factor into that like being pregnant itself am i asking it correctly i hope I. yeah i mean (laughs) there are so many different kinds of things that happen to a person's body when they are pregnant that they don't tell you about (laughs) like nobody tells you about all of these different things and all the different ways in which your body might be transformed and the hormones are just like that that is something else for me. My whole life was dictated by those hormonal changes. And so absolutely, I think there was definitely like a physical component to it. And then for me, I think probably just having a lived experience of trauma, having lived experience of depression, even before my pregnancy, Mm. probably, um, you know, was a risk factor. So that, that postpartum depression. And then also I think something that we don't talk about a lot is the fact that for me, um, having that second child was actually a grieving experience, Uh right? So we don't often talk about the fact that um, a life change like the birth of a child that you're supposed to be really happy about and everybody else around you is really excited about like, oh, it's such a wonderful thing. You had a baby. Like there's all this expectation, right? That it's supposed to be a really positive thing. It was a grieving experience for me. And at Cyprus, when we talk about grief, we we define it as the change in a familiar pattern of behavior, right? And for me, um, becoming a mother for the second time meant that um, I was... I no longer had an only child. There was going to be a second child and um, life was never going to look the same again. And um, the second child was really different from the first child. My experience of parenting him was really different and um, caused me to question, you know, my competency and all of these things that were happening in my life. And, and so I think grief played a role in it too, but yes, there was a physical component. And then there was this other piece that, you know, and I'm not sure exactly how all of that fit together, but that postpartum depression was intense. Like I, it's a blur when I look back on that first year of my son's life and Brooke was around with me. She remembers like I was really disengaged from everything at that time. It did. um, We'll give a little tip, you know, for, for, for women out there, um, because I mean, I'm not sure how the mother of my child would admit it now, but she for sure was, she was in it, you know, face first. And, but at the, uh, what, what to, to mothers out there, you know, how do you, how would you recommend in terms of empowering them to say, you know, not only trying to be conscious to recognizing it, but also admitting it and like seeking help. Like, what would you, what would you recommend to them when they notice them would you say off yeah, their I L's? Think, um, mm-hmm. So yeah, for thanks for asking that question, Robert. I think um like Brooke was saying earlier, a third of people who give birth experience postpartum depression. So I think part of this is understanding wow, how common it is, right? And that there's no shame in it. And um it's a lot, a third, one in three, that's, right? That's so that's a lot. A lot. And I, um <laughs> Give me those chances for the lottery. I'd be good. Right? (laughs) We'd all be really rich right now. (laughs) But like a one in three, that's a really big chance. And I think so part of it is acknowledging that it's likely that um, someone who gives birth will experience postpartum depression and to be ready for it. So like I was saying the third time around when I had my third baby, I got ready for it. Um, And in, in the end, I didn't 
experience it in the same way as I did with my second. It wasn't as hard, but I was prepared. Um, so I acknowledged the fact that it might be coming. I set myself up with um, support systems, including like professionals. So I had a therapist on standby. I had already reached out to my OBGYN about it. I told um, even my children's pediatrician about it saying like, look, keep an eye on me, right? But I think a lot of it is about activating all of your systems of support. Like if you are lucky enough to have that village of people around you that cares about you, um, colleagues at work, friends in your life, family members who care about you. It's about tapping them and saying like, okay, I'm about to go through this big change. And um, I know last time it was really rough. I need y'all to keep an eye on me. Not all of the stuff that we talk about at Cyprus. Like I think there's this myth that we all need to engage in more quote unquote self-care to um, get better and be better in the world. But the entire onus of taking care of ourselves can't just be on us, right? We're not alone in this. And so we have to activate our communities. We have to reach out to the people who love us and say like, heads up, I'm about to go through something that's really hard and I want you to keep an eye on me. Like if I, you know, like ask me if I'm doing okay, if I tell you like I need help, I need you to be there. And so it's community care. Um, but I think getting ready is a big part of it. No, I, I, think, I also would say for everyone, for everyone else <laughs> around that new family, like, don't just do the first check-in. Don't just bring the damn baked casserole or ziti or whatever the hell y'all bring. You don't just like, don't take the Facebook post for granted that, uh, you know, everybody posts their shiny day. You don't just do the first check-in. Do the second check-in. Do the third check-in. Be the person who checks in at six months. Be the t- person who says, hey, how you doing at eight months? You know, it, it doesn't, it, you know, I don't want to just put it all on the moms either um, because I think that when you're in the middle of it, it can be hard to recognize in yourself. You can be too down, you know, too far down the rabbit hole. It's up to everyone else, including partners, to, to know those statistics and to know, like, hey, I need to be aware that this might happen to us. So how am I doing a check-in with Jasmine, right? And then you have what I call the pinky swear friends, right? The pinky swear people where you have a pinky swear that you tell the truth, right? Like, you you got to tell. I, one of my funny stories from COVID is I have a pinky swear friend, and I called her one time. I was like, hey, how you doing? It was, like, right early on in 2020. Everybody's locked in, right? I'm like, hey, girl, how you doing? She's like, uh, you know, I'm fine. How are you? And I just could tell. And I was like, yeah, pinky swear. And she's like, actually, last night I opened a bottle of rosé wine while I was uh, ordering my groceries to be delivered. And I accidentally ordered 12 frozen chickens. Can I give you some? And I was like, <laughs> you got to have the people in your life that accept you and love you even when you're dumb and order 12 whole chickens. You know, those are the pinky swear people. Those That's you gotta have chicken. those. You need you gotta have the frozen yeah. chicken people. You know, I I I, I st- I'm starting to see a little pattern here. Obviously, community sounds like super important. You know, uh, there's no successful mm-hmm. civilization built on the back of one person, and um, mm-hmm. and as a species, we're not built to be alone. Quite honestly, we don't have fur, we don't have long claws, our teeth are stubbly. You know. Our, our feet hurt when we step on sand, you know, 
So we need a community. I mean, that's just by default, you know, go to church if you want to argue about the facts, but that is true. So, and then when we're alone, we talk to ourselves. We need somebody. So uh, go ask the people locked up in isolation. So, um, so with that said, I think you're absolutely right. That's, that seems to be a key component, community, social support. We can't, and, and, and allowing us to be okay with admitting we can't do it all on our own. Am I right? So there you go. That was for you, Brooke. <laughs> all right. Let's get to the last uh, segment here. All right. Now we're going to talk about ways to manage depression. Are there, uh, Jasmine, are there any alternatives to the traditional treatments of depression that I or someone else can try? Are there some like, you know, tips and tricks? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I so we teach in mental health first aid that, you know, the the action plan includes encouraging appropriate professional help for somebody, but also encouraging self-help and other support strategies, right? So I think it's, um, there's a lot out there that people may not traditionally, like, think of right away when it comes to treatment for mental health challenges. And we, we often, we come up with like a, Um, a standard way of what it's supposed to look like. Maybe we think of mental health treatment as being on a couch in some therapist's office. It's like an old dude with a pen and a clipboard taking notes while we spill our guts and our life story, right? That's kind of what we've we've been socialized to believe it is. And there's a lot of other kinds of um, professional treatment that are out there. Um, Sometimes it can be as simple as starting with your primary care physician or somebody that you have a good relationship with and letting them know that you are managing a mental health challenge or that you've got you're going through a hard time um there's all kinds of therapy right there's not only cognitive behavioral therapy but there's therapy that involves art and animals and like creativity there's so many different kinds of professional treatments that are available that are beyond sort of what our our standard picture of what is what, what that's supposed to look like and then um with self-help, you know, Robert, you keep mentioning physical activity as being one of the things that you've been using to to help yourself, and that's totally real, right? So there are some some habits and practices that we can build into our everyday lives, little micro routines, little things that we do for ourselves that can help support our mental health. And um, physical activity is totally one of those things. There's, um, so Brooke teaches a workshop on um, self-care and toxic stress. And that's one of the the things that she mentions. But, you know, for some people, it could be meditation and yoga. Um, For other people, it can be, you know, engaging in a support group. Um, For others, it's art and creativity and making something. For others, it's exercise. So there's so many different things that we can do, both with the help of a professional and just by ourselves or with our communities and our friends and family that can always help support our mental health. It's, it sounds like, um, I'm going to look for a common denominator. I'm kind of, I'm an analytical person. So I look for the, the but, uh, <laughs> patterns and so forth, but, um, sounds like getting up and doing something about it. If you really, you know, if you're summing it up, like however you manifest that, right? Like me, it's the gym. Or you, it's talking to other people, talking to your friend about a dozen chickens she bought, etc. Like we're doing, it's the doing that seems to 
be a common denominator. Am I am I wrong or am, am I getting it? Or are you just looking at me like, bruh, you know, but that seems to be the common denominator <laughs> I'm getting. Okay. Uh, but it's like, because I noticed for me, okay, it was um, when I messed up that relationship, boy, that first 24 hours was, I was down a deep hole. I was like, whoa, how did you mm-hmm. do that? Like, this was, she could have been the one. And it seemed like you just keep steering this boat. It's going to go that way. And I messed it up. And the first thing I did was I admitted it. I, I just had to get it out. Damn, I did this. I called up my friend, my guy friend, you know, people I could trust. And then I immediately started playing loud, like positive affirmations, motivational stuff. I started doing things. I didn't stay in the house, you know. So I'm starting to see a common denominator here. That seems to be uh, something we all can do. Am I right? Which is to. So there, there are lots of different studies that are um, about different things that can help us. Um, so, for example, movement is important. Um, I like that. Movement is important because for a few different reasons. Number one, um, it's going to give us different chemicals, mood elevating chemicals, things like endorphins, dopamine, stuff like that. Um, those are you know, they're going to make us feel better. So moving is good. Forward movement is good. Walking is really, really helpful. Um, so it, it may be going to the gym for some people. It may be walking is, is really good for some. Why is forward movement so important? When we were hunters and gatherers, we, if we were on the move, it meant that we were okay. It meant that we weren't injured, we weren't sick, we weren't back in the cave, right? Like we were out there and your brain reads forward movement as I got this, right? And so if I'm forward moving, my brain's like, oh, Brooke's cool, man. She's got this. Look at her go. She's getting berries, right? So forward movement's important. Nutrition is incredibly important. Um, There's a whole new uh, uh, part of nutritional psychology called nutritional psychology and nutritional psychology. We have about 95% of the serotonin that we have, which is another mood elevating chemical is actually in our gut. And if we eat the right foods and we hydrate, we literally migrate that serotonin to our brain. So hold hold on. (laughs) Wait, you're saying there's positivity in my gut. Is that what we're, yeah. You got, you got 95% of the chemical that they use in antidepressants and anti-anxiety meds in your own gut. So if you take care of your gut health, if you're eating omega-3s, complex carbohydrates, you're hydrating. greens, stuff like yep, that. Yep, you're moving that serotonin to your brain. What? Exercise, the other thing exercise does is there's a lot of amino acids that are competing for, for room in our brain right? Tryptophan is one of them. It builds serotonin in your brain. Exercise takes the other ones out. Let's tryptophan in. You increase your serotonin. So there are ways that we can migrate serotonin into our brain. There's studies that are showing just by changing what people eat, they're actually able to get them off of antidepressant, anti-anxiety medications. So exercise, eating right, but doing all those things that Jasmine's talking about right? Um, all those community-based things, healing circles, music, you know, all of the, the art that you create, all of the stuff that you're making, that's really important. 
the thing I always think about too is the part of the brain where trauma happens is, is without words. It's called our limbic system and it's about survival and emotion. And so if we want to heal from trauma, maybe we have some lived experience with that. One of the things I always want to look for are opportunities to express myself without words. Um, so for some people that might be art, right? That may be a way. For some others, it might be cooking. For some people, it might be gardening. It might be doing other stuff. But you're looking for a way to express yourself in the nonverbal part of your brain. That's really, really important. So all of these different things, there's a lot of really great um, information. I think some of the most exciting stuff is actually about meditation and mindfulness practice. Meditation Mm -hmm. has been shown to decrease inflammation in the body, right? So staving off some of those chronic diseases. But one of the things it does for those of us who have intergenerational trauma is it actually strengthens the protectors of your DNA. And so meditation and mindfulness practice is one of the things that a lot of trauma folks are studying to see can we interrupt intergenerational trauma by passing down DNA resilience. So there's a lot of really good stuff out there. It's about movement. It's about the right food. It's about meditation and mindfulness. And then it's about that sort of nonverbal self-expression. Those are all things that neuroscience are saying are going to help us. That's fit. That's fantastic, and uh, it's really got me thinking when you mentioned the meditation part, quite honestly. Um, yeah, when I was younger, I was doing uh, a lot of martial arts, and um, we had a Tai Chi instructor, and he was awesome. But at the time, I was so young, I didn't really respect the patience and the importance and the discipline. I just wasn't disciplined. I was young, you know? And, uh, but now as I get older, I realize I, I look back at what he was teaching and I was like, God, he was, you know, he, there was something, there's something to it that I just wasn't mature enough to comprehend at 24. And now at 42, I can totally, you know, understand the importance in its place, if that makes any sense. And he was a great teacher, but anyway, um, Okay, now why do you, Jasmine? Why, why, why do we rely so much in America on pharmaceuticals when treating depression or mental illness? I mean, I just, I mean, I every year I hear an oxy this and a codone this, and I mean, if I, I have to, I have to be a pharmaceutical just to get a band aid now, a pharmacist to get a band aid nowadays. I mean, I don't know, I don't know oxy from a codone, you know. So help me understand <laughs> what is. If, 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 cause you, cause what I just heard from Brooke sounds like things I can get down with. I can digest that. I could give it a shot, right? We could feel, okay, maybe I'll try rock climbing with some meditation. You know, all these things sound good to me. Some more greens. I like broccoli. I like collard greens. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> when it comes to all these other things that I hear on TV, I mean, Christ, it's scary as hell. I don't want it to tell my doctor I'm depressed. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's actually, it's, it's a complicated question because you're looking again at systems, right? And I think some of the answer to that question is about money and who's making money <laughs> from the, the medications that are being prescribed to folks. Um, but, you know, I think sometimes it can feel like we're looking for an easy solution. I remember when I was first navigating depression when I was a teenager, all I wanted was the medication because I was looking for a way to feel better faster. 
And I was like, hey, can somebody just give me a pill to fix this? Because like, I don't like feeling like this anymore. Right. Um, But in reality, I think that there is a lot that we can do. And what I've been learning, especially in recent years and, and all of that stuff that Brooke was just talking about, like there's a lot that we can do that doesn't require medication. For some folks, it's necessary, right? So with some kinds of mental health disorders, it's really necessary for somebody to be um, treated with medication so that they can continue to lead a productive life and that they can find a way to manage the mental health disorder that they are navigating um, to, to, you know, engage in the world and with the people around them. But for um, many of us, it's not necessary. And there's a lot of other things that we can do. But I, I don't know if I have a great answer as to why, except that it's about money. Uh, that that literally was my only assumption. And being that it is America, uh, we're probably not too far off. So uh, I've heard so many horror stories and documentaries. I mean, when you start to see one or two, you like, oh, maybe there's a sl- you know there's a conflict of interest and they have a their own gripe. But when you see so many, where in which doctors and not saying all, but definitely there's enough that are getting paid basically through vacations, et cetera, just to just write this. And there you go. You hurt your leg. There you go. And then when they're addicted, they blame the addict, not the person who wrote the fucking, excuse me, the prescription in the first place. So that makes me not quite honestly, that's why I didn't call Kaiser for a while. But when I heard that they had a mental health situation i said oh okay let me dig this part but i made it clear i do not need a psychiatrist i don't want drugs i need someone to talk to period a professional mm-hmm. and, uh, and i, I made, think that I made we that very clear for me i'm sorry yeah i think that's that's important what you're saying robert because like we all have an opportunity to advocate for ourselves when we're seeking support for a mental health challenge and like we i think part of this is being informed and being able to tell Kaiser or whatever health system you're working with that like, this is the kind of care that I'm looking for first. And we all know that the road to recovery can be windy and that sometimes we've got to try lots of different options before we arrive at the one that actually ends up helping. Like maybe we try the therapy and it doesn't work with that therapist. We try a different one, or maybe we're doing meditation and that's not helping for us, but maybe it was our diet. Like everybody's a little bit different, but I think being well-informed and being able to advocate for ourselves and direct our own treatment and have some autonomy in that is really important, right? To say like, I don't want to start with the medication. I want to try this other thing and see if it works for me first. So being able to advocate for yourself, I think that that's powerful, but at the same time can be very hard, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, I, 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 I didn't realize that my, the connection between depression and me sabotaging certain quality relationships were connected until just now. Yeah. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And um, so to get to the point of advocating also, I think that could be hard too. And um, I hope anybody that hears this episode at least uh, can find some inspiration that, you know, people care, you know, and to just go out there and seek it. Um, last thing is, what are some good ways to support those that are suffering with depression? And that could be from either one, you know, or both, quite honestly, I'd like to hear. What are some quick, quick, uh, fun ways? 
or not fun kicking a butt (laughs) well they might be fun you never know (laughs) that's right um yeah you know one of the things i often think of is um particularly if someone's kind of in those early stages you know i don't i don't have to sit down and like stare at someone in the face and be like Let's talk about our feelings, you know, like I don't, that doesn't, it doesn't have to be like that, you know, like maybe we, we go for a walk or let's make dinner together or let's, you know, let's, let's go to an art museum and look at some beautiful stuff and I can do a check-in. Like, I don't, you, you, we sort of laughed about like, Hey, let's think of some fun ways, but does it always have to be so heavy? Right? Like I, I can check in on you and still make it about something else. I call that side by side being, right? Like I'm going to be with you side by side, but I'm not putting you on the spot, right? I'm not saying like, I want to talk about your mental health. I have concerns, you know, like, (laughs) yeah, like I'm not, I'm not coming at you like that, right? Like I'm coming at you like, Hey, I'm just checking in and how you been and and that sort of thing. Um, I do think also if we notice the situation's getting worse, right? And someone's having difficulty accessing that care, Maybe we offer to give them a ride to the appointment or we say, hey, I can watch the kids while you're gone or, you know, hey, let's go grab some lunch when you're finished. There are other supportive sort of safety net things we can do. We, we often talk about being a bridge to that care. Like, let me help. Mm. If it's your partner or someone you're really close to, maybe you find the, the clinic and you make the appointment and you, you know, you drive them there. I, the analogy I always use is like, when you're really, really sick and you need to go to the doctor, someone gives you a ride, right? Like someone goes into Walgreens and gets your prescription and makes you soup and brings you a blanket. Like that, why should it be any different? Right. So we might also do those little supportive things for people if they're, if they're really uh, in it. But I think those early stages, we don't have to make it feel like so much in order to let someone know I really care I'm consistent. I'm going to be here. Right. And, and it can be as simple as let's make dinner together or ride the ferry and and go to farmer's market or something, you know, that side by side stuff matters a lot. Yeah. It sounds like, uh, yeah, just just to piggyback off of what Brooke is saying, like that, the consistency matters too. Right. So it can't just be like one time we go out and have a walk together and then I don't, like follow up with this person for another year and then expect them to feel like I'm a safe person to talk to. Right. We've got to maintain that ongoing relationship. And, and maybe sometimes it's just this, a a text message that we send them that says like, Hey, I want to let you know, I'm still thinking about you and I'm still here and like, hi, (laughs) right. I'm sending you a funny meme or just stay present in that person's life and be consistent. Um, and then the, the, other pieces like noticing, right? Because if you are consistently present as part of that person's life, then you're going to notice the changes. You're going to notice if something gets a little bit worse, if the depression or the mental health challenge starts to impact their life um, more intensely. And part of what we can do as a supporter is to pay really close attention to the things that person is saying and what they're doing and their um their perspective on the world. And, and if it becomes worse to like, to then, you know, be more supportive and be more present and maybe connect them to some resources. Um, the the last thing is like, I want to echo that idea of taking on some of those quote unquote impossible tasks. Um, so I know from my lived experience with depression that when 
when we're in it, the things like tying your shoelaces can feel impossible. Um, even like paying bills or like returning a text message or answering the door, those things can feel like quote unquote impossible tasks. So as much as we can take that burden off of somebody, all these little tiny logistics, right? Making the appointment, maybe even organizing their vitamins into the case for them, like on a day-to-day basis, like all those little things, paying that cell phone bill, whatever it is, um, that can help take some of that burden off so that the person feels like they have room and space to work on their healing. I do. I, I don't want to um, sort of stop this question um, without saying if the situation ever got to crisis, right? Crisis then we're no longer questioning whether or not we're getting help, right? So right. if someone ever says to us, I'm thinking of killing myself, we need to connect that person to care. And I think one of the things your listeners need to know about that's coming is July 16, we are getting a new number that is our national mental health crisis number, 988. It's the new 911. There you <laughs> um, go. So, yeah, exactly. Yay. Right? So, yeah, it's really, really important because a lot of us, if we were managing someone's thoughts of suicide are not going to feel comfortable calling 911, right? 988 is going to connect us directly to a crisis counselor and that person can talk to the person with you and determine what the next step should be, if any. And so July 16, calling 988 is going to be another resource that we have that I think is really important for folks. That's that's real cool. So that's for loved ones as well as the person going through their yep. situation. Yep. And you don't have to be with the person in order to call. You can call and say, hey, I'm texting with someone or I'm managing something on Zoom or whatever. And that crisis counselor can talk to you about what ha- what's happening. The cool thing about 988 is that a lot of cities and counties are now developing non-police response to mental health emergency, which we're really excited about because so many folks get hurt or even die when the police are called to manage a mental health emergency. And so um, 988 is driving a conversation about mobile mental health units. So if we were managing a mental health crisis, a mobile mental health unit can come That's a van with a paramedic, a social worker, a peer specialist. They have food, they have water, they have blankets, and they're the ones who come and assess and decide what's next. And so I just want people to know that that's coming, that if you are ever in a situation where you are managing someone's thoughts of suicide, you know, or or the situation with depression is getting so serious it's a crisis level, soon we'll be able to call 988. All right. Well, that's that's a pretty good way to end this badness. So, uh, uh, no pun intended. Uh, but but no, that's that's pretty awesome. I um, didn't know about that. Who who who's who brought that about? The feds. The what? What? <laughs> don't tell them. Don't don't tell some what? people. They won't call just because. No, I'm telling you, man. It's they, they won't we're call. super excited about it. They'll, they'll think we're, we're really excited. Biden's about it. gonna I, show up, or 
The other side, no, I think I Trump's going to show up. I don't know. Well, like, Lord, let's not, nah, don't get me started. No, I, like, I think that um, one of the cool things about it, obviously mobile mental health units, that's that's really important. Um, but the other thing, it's, it's kind of driving a different conversation too, is like, you know, why do we have to have the police involved in mental health crisis anyway, right? Like, we I think a lot of why them, is that, I think why a lot is, of them agree with you. Yeah, like why? Too. Why do we? Why do we have that? They shouldn't be involved in that, and so it should be a mental health professional who's making the determination about what to do next, not a not a cop. So I think that that's um, nine eight eight is in response to a lot that's of great. advocacy efforts um, and Black Lives Matter consumer advocates. So I just want everyone to know that's coming, and okay. soon it'll be another tool in your toolkit if you're supporting someone who reaches crisis. All right, ladies, you both have been absolutely amazing. And I mean, I learned so much, but also I feel um, a bit more empowered. And I hope the listeners out there also feel a little bit more empowered, at least knowing that there are not only organizations, uh, the feds and uh, your neighbors are all trying to do something better about your mental health, because guess what? Bad mental health is bad for the economy. And uh, when it hits the economy, you know, all of a sudden things start moving. So uh, at least that's that's the how can you say one of the rosy sides to this to this situation. Um, but most importantly, is I just want to help normalize it in my small way. And whether you are feeling successful in your career or at least others deem you as or if you're trying to find your first step toward that career. Um, that you're going to fall many times. And as uh, Les Brown always says, if you're going to fall, fall forward, right? And he says, if you could look, he said, oh, he always said, if he said, oh, you know, if you fall, hey, if you could look up, you could get up. So um, he's a great speaker, Les Brown. God bless him. And thank God he's still with us. But nonetheless, he's he's helped me through many times. And um you know, if you if you ever feel something, go check them out. Now, with all that said, um, I want to thank you both for coming to the show. Um, I'm gonna wrap this puppy up. This is this has been a great talk. We're about an hour and a half in, and I want to let everybody know um, first how can they get in touch with you two about the Cypress Resilience Project? What's the easiest ways? Brooke? Jasmine or Jasmine? <laughs> like Jasmine knows better than I do. <laughs> Reach out. We're on Instagram. We're on Twitter. It's at Cypress underscore RP. Um, our website is Cypress www.cypressresilience.org. Um, and we would love to hear from you. Reach out to us that way. Contact us, sign us, sign up for our e-newsletter. We're always sending out upcoming trainings, resources to our communities. We'll give you updates on what we've been up to. Um, we promise not to flood your inbox, but we're here for anybody who wants to reach out. And, and where, where is your office located? What city? So we're all working from home right now, but our, um, our main office uh, is in Oakland. I just wanted people to hear that. <laughs> I already knew. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> okay, anyway. But nonetheless, um, thank you very much. Now, if anybody has any questions, comments, or concerns, of course, I am your host, Robert Silver, asking the questions in each episode. Am I crazy? So make sure to send your comments, questions, or concerns at crazy 247 
at gmail.com. That's crazy with a K. Thank you for watching.